Welcome to The Scrum, the podcast from WGBH News about politics and media from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. I'm Adam Riley. I'm joined, as I often am, by my colleague Peter Kadzis. Hello, Peter. Hey there, Adam. So this week's show is actually going to focus on an interview that our good friend David Bernstein, who now mans The Scrum's Washington, D.C. Bureau, did with Congressman Seth Moulton to take stock of his first few months in office. But before we get to that conversation, Peter, I want to talk with you briefly about this brief interaction I had with Stan Rosenberg, the fairly new Senate president, just a few days ago. I had gone over to the State House to ask him about the approach that he was trying to take on tax policy. So this turned into a conversation about kind of the lay of the land on Beacon Hill, because as you, I'm sure, remember, Rosenberg was on the losing end of this fight over reform. And Stan Rosenberg had said for a while, hey, we want to take a look at the question of a fiscal control board for the T in committee. But then the external pressure ratcheted up and the Senate and Rosenberg ended up changing their tune. So let's take a listen to this, again, brief interaction I had with Rosenberg. And Peter, I want to get your take on what he had to say and how he had to say it. Okay, you know, before we roll that, this sounds like we should be doing it for Commonwealth Magazine. (laughs) But go ahead. (laughs) Which which would be an honor, okay. right? Yes. Nothing wrong with that. All right, let's take a listen. Uh, what happened was uh, the governor put on a full court press. The speaker came out and said, we're going to uh, support a control board. Uh, so he jumped ahead of the committee process. So at that point, the Senate had an amendment that was coming up, and the decision in the caucus was that we should pursue a, uh, a control board construct that we felt comfortable with. And the results were demonstrated in the 40 to 0 bipartisan vote in the Senate. And so we sent over a, a compromise. It's, it's not the governor's proposal, but it's a strong construct that can help achieve what the governor wants. And that minimizes some of the problems we had. We didn't want a separate bureaucracy, and we didn't want to hand unfettered power to another entity. And so we accomplished both of those in our construct. And then um, the thing that I like actually the best about it is that the majority of the control board will actually be MassDOT uh, members, including the chair, uh, the Secretary of uh, Transportation. So when the, uh, when the board phases out, the majority will still be in place on the board, so we lose no institutional memory or history of what was being done. So I think Senator McGee and Senator Tard did a spectacular job negotiating with the governor and his staff through that, well, maybe 12-hour period to come up with something that everybody could live with. Are you frustrated that the full-court press from the governor and and the House Speaker coming out when he did and how he did that it sort of forced your hand in terms of making you guys make policy in the budget process as opposed to the committee process? I rarely get frustrated. Um, That's part of the fun of being in this building. You never know what to expect. The issue is, can you turn on a dime? And can you do what you need to do? We came out where we needed to be, which was we did not have an all-powerful separate entity. We had something that we think will work, and it's a kind of compromise that I think the process through the committee might have achieved as well. I wish it had gone through the committee. But, you know, when you're presented with an opportunity, you grab it and you run with it. And we did. We didn't hesitate. We saw the opportunity. We took it. All right, so Peter, what did you think of what Stan Rosenberg had to say there? Um, 
geez, I hate to say this, but we've got a Senate president who acts like an adult. We've got a governor who acts like an adult. We've got a Speaker of the House who's acting like an adult. What in Blaze's name is going on there? I thought he was very reasonable, very measured. Um, I've had a lot. It's been very interesting watching the battle between the House and the Senate because they're doing what civics books say they're supposed to do. They're trying to protect their prerogatives and extend their influence, but in a, a reasonable and creative way. And I think this is political conflict at its best. One of the things that struck me about the comments that Rosenberg made is that, you know, the stuff he said about, well, when you have an opportunity on Beacon Hill, you need to seize it. I've been around this building a long time. I know that things can change quickly. I could imagine those same words being uttered in a manner that was totally unconvincing. And I can imagine coming away thinking that the politician who'd uttered them in that unconvincing way was totally trying to BS me. But for some reason, the way Rosenberg said it, and I don't know if this comes across in just audio, I think it does, but talking to him in person, having him say what he did, I felt like he actually meant what he was saying. Maybe that's unexceptional, but it seemed surprising. No, no, no. I, I, now that you mention it, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, I think at the moment, and we don't know how long it'll last, the, this sort of triangle between the governor, the House Speaker, and the House Senate is, they're, um, I think they're being very honest, very forthright, and they're not afraid to fight and jostle with each other. But uh, no, I found him very convincing. I mean, he, he basically said, we didn't get everything we wanted, but we got enough. It's important for the process to move forward, and I suspect he'll be back to fight another day. <laughs> All right, well, let's leave Stan Rosenberg there and turn now to the hallowed halls of Capitol Hill. Again, our good friend David Bernstein recently trekked over to the Longworth Office Building in Washington and sat down with freshman Congressman Seth Moulton. Hello, Congressman. Welcome to the Scrum. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. So, Congressman, uh, you have been here, well, you got elected six months ago, and you picked a very good winter to not be in the greater Boston area. How's, how are you enjoying Washington? Well, of course, I was back every week. Back in the district, of course. That's right. <laughs> we, I actually go back uh, every, every weekend, just about every weekend. Uh, generally spend four days down in Washington, three back in the district. Uh, it was challenging to make uh, the flights work uh, with the storms. Oh, yeah. Uh, but also, of course, I wanted to be there um, for this historic winter and to understand uh, what all my constituents were going through. Uh, is uh, Are you settling in here in Washington? You, you found a place to, to live, to stay in those four days a week that you're here and settling in with your uh, daily life here? I have a place to live. I'm living with uh, two fellow Marines who are, uh, one's a federal prosecutor, one uh, runs a, a, a company that does work in Africa and Afghanistan. So two great, fascinating roommates. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm figuring out uh, things in a place that's totally new to me. I, I'm one of the only freshmen with no political background whatsoever. I've never even been an intern on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. So I'm lucky to have a great team that, um, that, that supports me, but uh, there's a lot to learn. We were just talking before we started uh, taping about your chief of staff, who does not have a typical uh, Capitol Hill background, comes from uh, some tech companies and so forth. That's right. Uh, we all know that Congress isn't working right now, so I didn't want to just create a traditional congressional office. So I have a very outside-the-box chief of staff. He has a similar background to mine in that he 
uh, served in the Marines and also has a, a, a business degree from Harvard and a degree from the Kennedy School. Uh, but then he went and worked for some startups out on the West Coast and brings a real innovative approach to, to getting our job done here in Washington. You know, I think a lot of us are, think this guy is one of a handful of minority party freshmen coming in. You're, so you're low on the totem pole within the low party on the totem pole. Um, is that, are you running into, like, you know, in terms of your office assignment with the office we're in now? It's, seems nice, but maybe not the premiere of a, a, a pick that you could have had. But um, are you running into any problems of being the sort of low man on the seniority poll? Look, we have a fine office, but I don't really care where my office is. I care about the impact I'm having on the debate. And I think the way to have impact as a freshman in the minority party is to be careful about picking your battles and, and speak up where people will listen to you. And certainly on issues uh, with our veterans and with foreign affairs, uh, as one of the only, uh, as one of the few veterans in Congress and one of the only combat veterans, uh, that this is a place where, where people listen to what I have to say. So I'm uh, honored to be on the Armed Services Committee. Mm -hmm. And at a time when we're facing threats around the globe from ISIS, uh, Russia, uh, and, and Putin, and the rise of China, uh, the uncertainty with Iran and the nuclear weapon. Uh, there are very important issues uh, that we need to deal with as a country, and I'm fortunate that people are willing to listen to my perspective as a young veteran of our recent wars. I, I want to ask some of the uh, <coughs> things you've been dealing with on, on that front uh, and on the budget you know, that, that's been recently going, uh, going on regarding that. Uh, but I... I'm interested in you getting onto that committee in the first place. Uh, you know, again, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, a freshman coming in, and uh, and also, uh, you know, again, this may just be sort of the pundit class thinking, oh, you know, when you take on and, and oust a member of your own party, uh, you know, you're not going to be, you're not going to get any favors from the status quo there in Washington. But you got that uh, committee that that you wanted to be on. Uh, you just got named um, recently to, to head up a, a subcommittee uh, on small business. So how, how have you managed? Has it been working relationships? Is it, what, what have you been able to do to, to get to the places you want to be? Well, I've worked hard to build relationships, and I've worked hard on the, on the committee. So, uh, you know, not everybody shows up to every hearing or asks uh, the best questions. I've worked hard to do that. Um, and the delegation from Massachusetts has been tremendously supportive. And that's made a, a great difference um, uh, in, in getting committee assignments and in, in, in figuring out how to navigate the Hill. Uh, th that's, been, that's been tremendously helpful. But overall in Washington, there's great respect for our democratic process. And even though there were many people on the Hill who campaigned actively against me in support of Congressman Tierney, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, they all respect the people's decision. And that's what I heard over and over again when I came down here in, in, my, in my first days on the Hill. Are they... Um being helpful to you as you're, you know, looking ahead towards re-election. Obviously, there's there's no stopping. You know, it always. And I know that you um, you raised quite a bit of money in the first quarter. Um, uh, have you found help from folks who were uh, on the other side previously? Several other members of the delegation contributed to my re-election campaign. It's always your first re-election is always the toughest, and so I'm honored to have their support. And we're obviously working hard as a team. Uh, to build that support throughout the district as well. Mm -hmm. um, what have you been hearing from, from the district these days? A anything that surprised you? I mean, aside from the, the snow and, you know, clean up from the winter. 
what I hear is a lot of enthusiasm for uh, a new approach, for, for doing some things a little bit differently. For example, the fishing crisis up in Gloucester. Mm-hmm. I mean, for years, really decades, it's been the fishermen versus the environmentalists. And we came in and said, look, you're all after the same thing at the end of the day. We all want a sustainable fishery. That's what the fishermen need to continue to apply their trade for years to come. That's what the environmentalists demand. And it's what NOAA has a responsibility as the regulator to, to ensure. So rallying around that common interest of finding a sustainable fishery, we tried to get people together on the science. And we're able to push through one of the first regulatory changes that uh, the fishery has seen in a long time. Uh, the, the change makes it uh, easier to fish alternate species that are doing pretty well, but the cod, which is the, you know, the, the species that's really um, you know, been hurting lately, is uh, the fishermen have volunte- voluntarily agreed to further reductions in their catch. So it's a change that's better for the fishermen, but it's also better for the fish. And that's emblematic of the kind of different approach that we're trying to bring to problems in the district. It, you know, um, the, the, I believe that the first thing I ever wrote about Seth Moulton was uh, that I criticized his, his announcement video for the camera work. <laughs> I, I said, I said, whatever he might have been saying, it might have been smart. I don't know, but but the camera work was so distracting to me that I couldn't even watch it. So, you know, it, he seems to have you know gotten over that. I think. Have you gotten over that? My, my We've tried to move past your first <laughs> column. Yes, thank you, David. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to find <laughs> something nice to say to make up for that. But um, <laughs> um, let me ask you about. I believe you just had, speaking of Gluster, police chief from Gluster? Chief Campanello came in. You were not talking to him about the missing Charlie Baker fisherman, I take it. We weren't. <laughs> he, he still hasn't been found. Hasn't, but, hasn't found him. But, but, but I'm sure the police chief But we're chief talking about something best. that's incredibly important, which yeah. is opiate addiction. And Chief Campanello has taken a lead on this issue, uh, really not just for Gloucester, but for the country. I mean, people across America are, taking, uh, are, are paying attention to what he's doing. And he's saying that basically if you come in as an addict, you can turn yourself in to the police and you won't get arrested. You'll be put immediately into a treatment program. And Chief Campanello speaks with tremendous credibility on this issue. He's been the chief of Gloucester for three years, but before that uh, was a police officer in Saugus and did seven years as a narcotics officer. And so he has been fighting the fight on the streets of the North Shore for years and has just recognized that despite all their good work, simply addressing the supply, the the drug dealers, the drugs coming into the country, it hasn't worked. I mean, we've seen opiate overdoses rise about 90% uh, from, I think, 2000 to 2012. Uh, In Lynn, the biggest city in the district, 280 overdoses last year, 35 of which are fatal. So it is an unbelievable problem. And clearly, uh, our past approach hasn't been working well enough. And so Chief Campanello has had the courage to try something radically new. And a lot of people are paying attention. Over 2 million visitors to his Facebook post. Uh, post. Uh, 2 million visitors to his Facebook post just in the past couple of weeks. It, it seems to me, uh, I've been having a lot of these conversations recently about this issue. And it seems to me like we're in a, a period, a, a sort of a unique period, especially in Massachusetts, of agreement in terms of the importance of it, the general approach, you know, in terms of looking at the the demand problem, you know, and and services side on that side, um, you know, Charlie Baker ran on it. 
seeing it, you know, up in the North Shore, among other places, you know, near near him. Uh, the attorney general of the state ran on it. Uh, it's, uh, mayors in a number of cities, including Boston, are very attuned to it. Um, what's needed to turn all that rhetorical support, and I think heartfelt support, into, you know, like you say, a, an actual approach that can work? Are, is everyone working together to, to try to find I right think we are money, the right services, and, and everything. I think we are. I introduced uh, Chief Campanello to Governor Baker uh, right here in Washington, and of course, the governor had already heard about the work that the chief is doing. But this isn't even just in Massachusetts. I mean, Congresswoman Catherine Clark is working on a bill with Senator Mitch McConnell. Right. And those are two names you wouldn't expect to see together on a piece of legislation. Uh, but this is. But it's on opiates, uh, and it's an issue that truly is affecting uh, all of us across America. So I think that people are coming together. But the question at the end of the day, of course, is not what the talk is, but what the action is. And that's why I met with the chief today. And we're looking at what kinds of legislative or uh, changes that we can make here in Washington to help his efforts back at home. And I don't want to get too, you know, because it's a topic we can get sunk into for a long time. But is someone or, you know, a bunch of you, like, is someone looking at, okay, well, here's what we can do at the federal level. Here's what you guys can do in the state house, you know, as they're going through their budget process and legislative process, here's what the attorney general can do, here's what the individual, you know, police chiefs and DAs and sheriffs and so forth. It, is that coordinated thinking and effort going on? I think it's starting. I, I wouldn't say that there's a incredibly well-coordinated effort that's been ongoing, but it's really coming together. And this was a topic uh, at the meeting we had with the entire delegation and Governor Baker. So, so I, was, I was actually going to ask you uh, what came up. I know that, that Governor Baker was here meeting with the delegation. I assume some of that was to talk about the FEMA money that you guys are trying to get a little bit more out of. Uh, but I was going to ask you what else came up at that meeting. Well, we talked about opiates a lot. That's very interesting. Uh, we talked about transportation funding. Uh, Senator Warren presented her uh, NIH bill and asked for support uh, from the governor and others um, across the country. Uh, that he can uh, be in touch with um, on that initiative, which I think is a great, great plan. And um, so uh, we covered a lot of important topics, and I think it's just important uh, for the people of Massachusetts to know that we're, we're working together. We're, we're, we're meeting, we're discussing uh, the issues that affect all of us across the state, and, um, and you know, every time the governor comes to town, we make an effort to see him. He's got a military buzz cut now. He does actually. I asked him if he were if he was planning to sign up when he got the haircut. Um, but uh, I think he's he, busy. I think he's a little busy right now. He's but. got a few other obligations. <laughs> um, I I do want to ask you about the um, uh, fast track uh, trade authorization and the the TPP bill. Obviously, that got um, slowed down at least in the Senate uh, the other day. Uh, but that's one where a lot of eyes are on you, where you're going to come down on it. Obviously, labor, some of which was not with you, but you, I, I'm sure you would like them to, to like you as you go into the next election. Um, have you made a decision on that? Where are you in your thinking so far? I haven't made a decision. I made a commitment uh, to the voters who elected me that I will approach all these issues uh, as thoughtfully as possible. And I'm going to make decisions based on the facts. Uh, not based just on what one interest uh, group says or the other. And in the district, there, there are a lot of voices on both sides. If you go to the eastern part of the district in general, uh, people are opposed to fast track and the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, that it would enable. 
uh, on the western side out on uh, 128 uh, there are a lot of businesses that see the potential to create more jobs if they can export more uh, through the deal so it's a great microcosm of this debate that's uh, playing out across the country and and there are good arguments on both sides so that's why I'm listening carefully and I'm in conversations with the White House I'm in conversations with Senator Warren and her office to just try to understand the the issue better several labor groups have met with me just in the past 24 hours mm. uh, so that's the commitment that I made to, to be a thoughtful uh, representative and to listen to the needs of my constituents and to not rush into a, a decision like this, um, but really to take it very seriously. Has Senator Warren lobbied you directly, called you directly to, to try to get you on board with it? Uh, she has, and but it, you know, look, it's a, it's a discussion based on the, the, the facts. I mean, it's, it really, we, we've gotten into um, some, uh, some really interesting conversations about uh, the specific uh, elements of the deal and what its implications may be. And then I've taken some of the things that she said and, and shared them with the White House. They've offered their perspective. We met with the Congressional Research Service, uh, which is a nonpartisan uh, group on, on Capitol Hill that, that is charged with just you know, explaining the facts to members of Congress and, and um, sort of um, you know, cutting through the politics. So we're working hard as an entire team to understand this issue as best we can before I make a decision. Um, on the, the military spending and the defense spending stuff, um, which is another area where I think a lot of us feel like common sense does not always apply on the spending. Um, how have, how have th I know you were uh, uh, sort of trying to make a stand on the A-10. So you wanted to uh, reduce the funding for that and, and put it towards something else. And and it, and it seemed to me like the, the pushback was sort of well, no, these are the contracts that we like, and we're going to go ahead with it. <laughs> you know, what, what's happened with that? Where, where do we stand with that? Well, we all talk about uh, the examples where uh, Congress funds things that the military doesn't even want. And the Air Force has said repeatedly that this is a good plane. It's done decades of, of valuable service. But we need to invest those funds in more pressing priorities. And my amendment was actually a compromise. It didn't uh, propose retiring all of the A-10s but uh, propose retiring some of them and, tr and transferring that mess, uh, that, those funds to unfunded requirements, things that the military has requested but we haven't funded, that are needed by the frontline troops, like IED protection. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the A-10 is a unique aircraft that in certain circumstances, very rare circumstances, might be the only aircraft that can provide a certain type of close air support. Uh, exceedingly rare, though. Uh, so, so maybe hypothetically uh, some troops uh, may not get the support they need if they, we don't have a-10s in the inventory but we know for a fact that thousands literally thousands of American uh, young men and women have lost their lives due to IEDs and so when we have unfunded requirements for IED protections and yet we're giving hundreds of millions of dollars to a plane that the Air Force doesn't even want I think people can see the right decision and that's exactly what my amendment proposed and is it frustrating to you? I mean, does it become personal to you, you know, having been there, you know, knowing what more funding for IED protection would mean, you know, having seen it, and, and then being in these sort of, you know, conference rooms here where deals are made and see that, that they're not willing to look at it that way? It's frustrating to me because very few people in Congress have the perspective of having been uh, one of the troops on the ground. 
on the front lines. And that's why we need more veterans in Congress, because that perspective is important, especially when we're dealing with matters of life or death uh, in the wars that we face uh, across the world today. It, it, do you, what do you put that to, the fact that you know, there used to be, back you know, a couple generations ago, a generation or two ago, a lot of military people, a lot of veterans, uh, combat and otherwise, uh, in political office. Is it partly the fact that we now have uh, a separation between sort of the poor who, uh, who go into and, and the working class who go into the, and serve in the military, and then the Congress tends to be the wealthy class who, who end up here? Is that, is that part of the problem? I'm sure it's part of the problem, and the, the bottom line is that there's a half of 1% that's been of America uh, that served in uh, the wars of the past decade, and, um, and so there just aren't as many veterans as we used to have. And that's why I'm a big proponent of national service, by the way, expanding the opportunities for Americans to serve. Uh, millennials want to serve uh, their country. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's one of the, so, so we've got to give them those opportunities. There are about five and a half applicants to AmeriCorps for every one AmeriCorps slot right now. So even if we just increased opportunities for national service, uh, more young Americans would get to serve their country, whether in the military or in the Peace Corps, city year, uh, a lot of different opportunities. Uh, and I think that that would translate into better leadership in Washington. Uh, one of the interesting statistics is how much veterans want to serve again. You know, I'm someone who had no interest in politics before. I wasn't involved in any campaign. I'd never was in, an intern on the Hill. I, uh, I, I'd never been a part of the Democratic Club in college or anything like that. But in the war, I saw some of the consequences of failed leadership in Washington firsthand. And coming out of that experience, decided that I wanted to serve the country again. And fundamentally, that's why I'm here. And uh, just, uh, I'll, uh, I know uh, I want to let you go because I know you've got meetings to go to, but do you feel like uh, you've changed in your perspective uh, at all, uh, or has anything changed you since you've actually gotten here and, and now that you see what it is and everything? It, has it altered your perspective at all in the six months or so? One of the things I've been disappointed to see here is how much the partisanship is institutional. Hmm. How Democrats and Republicans just literally don't even have the opportunity to meet one another. So what I've done is tried to reach out to Republicans and tried to find common ground, uh, especially with veterans. That's one of the first places I started. Uh, I recently co-authored uh, an op-ed in Time magazine about what to do with ISIS in Iraq. And I co-authored it uh, with a fairly conservative Republican from Oklahoma, uh, someone who you wouldn't expect to see uh, together with me on many issues. But I thought it was a powerful statement uh, to have someone from a very different part of the political spectrum, really representing a very different constituency, agree with me on this important uh, challenge facing the country. Really more powerful than if I had just gotten another Democrat from Massachusetts, say, to be my co-author on this piece. So my point is, you've got to reach out to people, get to know them personally so that you can find places where you can cooperate professionally. And that's the way to find common ground. That's the way that a representative from Massachusetts and a representative from Oklahoma can work together to solve the problems that face our country. Well, I, I thought it was, it was very interesting during your uh, election, the primary, where Congressman Tierney was really trying to emphasize the need for partisanship, you know, the need to be the strong, uh, uphold the strong Democratic uh, line against the Republicans. And right next door, 
you had um, Nikki Tsongas touring her district with a Republican who she was working with on some of the military issues. And I know uh, you serve with her now, I believe, on the on defense. On armed services. Yeah, on armed services, I mean. Um, so uh, are you able on, like, you know, with, with her and with, you mentioned Catherine Clark, is there sort of a, are things actually happening? Is there some reason for hope uh, for people who want to believe that that kind of stuff can happen? I think there is. I mean, let's not get too excited here. There are a lot of challenges that we face every day, and the partisanship is is serious. It's, it's serious and severe. But I sense a change, and I hear a lot of people talking about uh, you know, the election in 2014 and how across the country, whether Republican or Democrat, they heard from the American people that folks are sick and tired of this hyperpartisanship, and they recognize that that's what has made Congress so ineffective. And in order to get things done, we've got to find common ground across the aisle. You know, I, I look at my experience as a Marine. I, in my platoon, I had Marines from all over the country, from Massachusetts and Vermont, but also from Alabama and Texas, uh, from a gated community outside of Park City, Utah, and from inner city Brooklyn, New York. We came together with remarkably different backgrounds, different religious beliefs, different political beliefs, but at the end of the day, we were able to set aside those differences to do what's best for our country. And, you know, I think that's what Americans expect of Congress as well. In the House of Representatives, there are 435 uh, representatives from different parts of the country, each with different constituencies and different priorities. But we ought to be able to come together in Washington and do what's best for America. So that's exactly the kind of congressman that I'm working to be. It, and, by the way, your own district within the district is a very diverse it's not a you know one type of neighborhood from one city or you know one little rural area it's it's a real combination of different very different people in that district it is and it's a district of proud communities small towns small businesses uh, a lot of folks uh, from different backgrounds who were able to live together and work together and support each other yeah. uh, in their communities and and uh, those are the values that I bring to Washington. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming on the Scrum, Congressman. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And I, um, I take back anything nasty I might have written about you along the way, which I'll have to go back and catalog them because I think they might have been a few. It's quite all right. That is going to do it for the latest installment of The Scrum. Peter Kansas, as always, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. If you like what you heard today, then please subscribe to The Scrum on iTunes while you're at it. And if you're feeling generous, you can even leave a kind review and maybe tell some of your friends to listen. You can find links to iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud on our website, wgbhnews.org slash scrum. That's S-C-R-U-M. You can also email us feedback and ideas at scrum at wgbh.org. Our producer is Amanda McGowan. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Can you hold? Can you pass me that coffee, please? Yeah. I'm not falling asleep. I just no, 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 no. Warm liquids are good. I, I have that effect sometimes.